Hey everyone, Jennifer here, and I want to treat you to another bonus episode while we are between seasons. This one is a callback to an episode that we did all about the awesome and awesomely weird photographer, Ouija. This is one of my favorite deep dives, and if you don't know about Ouija and his work or just want a little bit of a refresher, please enjoy this episode. And then we will be back to you in just a few weeks with more fresh content. And remember, if you are missing that art curious newness and you want some more in your life, don't forget that you can take my audio course from avid.fm called Breaking Barriers, Women Artists of Renaissance Europe. For about a dollar and a half a day, you can have 21 straight episodes learning all about some of my favorite artists from Renaissance Europe. And it, again, is less than a cup of coffee and you get three weeks of great fun. I'll put the link, as always, in the show notes. And either way, enjoy this look at Ouija. Even though it's springtime and the flowers are starting to bloom and the birds are singing, I still feel like yearning for a cozier, spookier time of year. This Halloween-type yearning not only infiltrates what I want to watch and what I want to read, but it also affects what kind of art I am enjoying. In particular, I've been curious about the myriad ways that we can portray death in visual art. Because death has always been a part of art history. So much of the great art that we know and love today works in the capacity to stave off one of the terrible side effects of death, being forgotten. Portraits, stone monuments, ancient coins— they all aim to ensure that the subject depicted will be remembered and revered for all eternity. There's funerary sculpture and death masks that tackle death directly as their bread and butter. And then there are artists whose concepts and philosophies of death were brought into the modern era, with people like Ana Mendieta, Felix Gonzalez Torres, Damien Hirst, and Andreas Serrano getting in our faces about the fact that we are all going to die someday. But one artist really takes the cake in terms of focusing on the everyday tragedy of death as a subject in a very revealing and even exploitative extent. Many people might jump to say, oh, Andy Warhol. And indeed, Warhol loved to glamorize death in his works, from replicating tabloid images of car crashes and aviation accidents to these truly chilling portraits of electric chairs. But was he the first to really make death his calling card? Nope. That honor belongs instead to an immigrant photographer working in Manhattan in the 1930s and 1940s. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. We are revisiting and tweaking some of our favorite early episodes. This one is a deep dive into the story of Ouija, one of the subjects of our fifth episode. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Ouija, of course, wasn't the actual name of the artist we're discussing today, but we'll get to that nickname shortly. The man who would eventually become Ouija was born Asher or Usher Felig, though he eventually went by the Americanized name of Arthur Felig. 
Felig was born on June 12, 1899, near Lemberg, Austrian Galicia, now modern-day Zolochiv in Ukraine. When he was 10 years old, Felig immigrated with his mother and siblings to New York City, following in the footsteps of his father who had come to the country three years prior to establish roots. This was at the dawn of the 20th century when immigrants from Eastern Europe, and elsewhere of course, were not really welcomed with open arms. But Arthur Felig did not let his outsider status affect him. And indeed, he worked extra hard to overcome it, dropping out of school in his early teens to work odd jobs to support his family so that they could live as secure a life in America as possible. Somehow, serendipitously, one of his first jobs was working as a street photographer, taking pictures of children riding a pony. He would then sell the photographs to the children's proud parents at a markup of 50 cents for three photographs. As Felig later told his friend, fellow photographer Ralph Steiner, quote, It was a good racket, but the pony ate too much. He fell in love with the camera almost immediately and was hired quickly to act as an assistant to a commercial photographer in the early 1920s. During that decade, he did almost everything that could be done with photography, developing, printing, editing, selling, and creating. His biggest coup came in 1924 when he took a job as a darkroom technician at Acme News Pictures, which later became United Press International Photos. He juggled this and several other low-paying jobs, which gave him just enough free time so that if he limited the amount of sleep he got each night, he could have the chance to go out into the darkened city and shoot his own images. Felix's nocturnal ramblings around New York City with his camera morphed him quickly into a rather strange fellow. But instead of letting his curious personality become a liability, he embraced it and crafted and cultivated a very specific persona meant to garner attention. By the time he was in his early 30s, he was overweight, brash, with uncombed hair, and never without his favorite vice, a cigar of which he would usually smoke up to 20 per night, according to some reports. He was instantly recognizable, and word of his photographic talents got around, quickly. As his career progressed, he would eventually make enough money to keep himself comfortable, particularly since he married only in the last years of his life and did not have any children of his own, and because he mainly lived for his work. He sold his photographs to many of the top newspapers, magazines, and tabloids of the day, and he was paid handsomely for it, sometimes receiving $5 per picture, which was a pretty penny for an image back in the 1930s and 40s. He was published by the New York Post, the Daily News, the Herald Tribune, the World Telegram, and beyond. But he was always very careful to not let on whether or not he was financially stable. Probably this was his attempt to stay identifiable with the everyman, as he most often covered the events or causes which happened to the lower classes instead of those of the elite like other celebrity-obsessed tabloid photographers roaming New York at the time. And to me, that's one of the beauties of Ouija's works. His images are really democratic, crossing class and race lines with no particular social or political affiliation, though most of his works are pretty closely tied to the working class. So it makes sense that he'd make himself look a little shabbier. And he really took this to a whole new level. To seem more like a member of the working class, for example, Felig would later take all of his suits to a tailor, who would add at least two inches of fabric to the entirety of the outfit. This made it appear, according to the editor and columnist Aline Talmy, quote, as if he had been bought off of a pushcart on New York City's Orchard Street, unquote. 
He lovingly called himself the Gentleman Bum. In the 1920s, Arthur Felig was working by day at Acme News Pictures and carefully crafting his photographic style in his off hours. In those photographs, he searched actively for his own version of America, his take on the Americans who surrounded him every day. And what would become the everyday of Felig was darkness. Literally. We're talking most specifically about night, the time of day when Felig would perform his photographic walkabouts. Though he didn't exclusively shoot in the evening, it was really these photographs that we think of when we think of Ouija. Shadowy alleyways, darkened movie theaters, shuttered storefronts, and crowded streets, with their inhabitants all starkly illuminated by his flashbulb, which provided what he dramatically called, quote, Rembrandt lighting, unquote. He began to hone his style, manufacturing spontaneous black and white images that focused many times not only on the literal darkness of the environment, but on the metaphorical darkness of urban life. He could frequently be found at the scene of a terrible fire, a murder, a car accident. And these images that he created there are seemingly equal parts exploitative and detached. His photographs could capture the aftermath of a grisly death destined for the tabloids of the day, but they were also just documents of the event itself, too. And much of the time, the scene of the crime or the burning building wouldn't be as interesting as his exact subject matter. Because instead, he focused primarily and predominantly on the human element. As Ralph Steiner wrote, quote, Early in his career, he discovered that most corpses and fires look pretty much like one another. Now he looks first for the human element, for anything incongruous, for little points that may be more interesting or revealing than the main event, unquote. So Felig turns his lens towards a policeman carrying out newborn kittens from that burning building, for example, or to a scene of onlookers rubbernecking a crime. These scenes can be humanizing, but then others are very film noir. Policemen peering over crime scenes in their fedoras, pavements darkened by spilled blood, and even images such as one of my favorites, of a stone-faced, fur-wearing woman whom the photographer would identify in his capital letter scrawl in the margins as, quote, the murderess, unquote. It wasn't all tragedy and debauchery with Arthur Fellick, though. Some of his most engaging images are of children cooling off in the spray of a fire hydrant on a hot summer day, or of couples kissing in the midst of a crowded movie theater. He photographed people laughing at a bar, dancing in Harlem, leaving the opera. But it is his images of the grittier realities of the city at night that still transfix us as viewers. And the man that would soon style himself as Ouija felt more at home in these places. He once said, quote, Sometimes a night goes by with no murder and it don't seem right to me. I think something's wrong. Unquote. Felig recognized that he had a really good thing going. He had a style that was eye-catching and his works were in high demand. So in 1936, he left his various odd jobs in favor of something entirely different, to become a freelance photographer. And that changed everything. About his newly independent mode of working, Ouija said, quote, In my particular case, I didn't wait till somebody gave me a job or something. I went and created a job for myself, freelance photographer. And what I did, anybody else can do. What I did simply was this. I went down to Manhattan Police Headquarters, and for two years I worked without a police card or any kind of credentials. When a story came over a police teletype, I would go to it. The idea was I sold the pictures to the newspapers, and naturally, I picked a story that meant something." Felix's involvement with the police teletype was integral to his work, 
and integral to his nickname and branding. At the beginning, he did spend a lot of time simply skulking around police headquarters, waiting for a tip-off about the latest crime scene. But eventually, he was granted access to his very own police teletype machine, which was a kind of electric typewriter that would transmit messages from point to point, almost like a precursor to a fax machine. And Arthur Felig was actually one of the very first civilians in history to have his own teletype. And in true Ouija style, he really took it to the next level in its use. He set up house in an apartment across the street from police headquarters in Manhattan and installed his teletype by his bedside. He left it on all day and night and would jump into action any time a noteworthy event came to his attention. It was said that somehow he even seemed to wake up from a dead sleep to get the best scoop, almost as if he knew a crime was being committed before the police even knew about it. Later, when he bought his own car, he installed his own police radio therein so that he could drive around all hours of the night and arrive at any crime scene or happening far earlier than his competitors from any tabloid or newspaper. And it is by this seemingly supernatural ability to arrive almost right after a crime had been committed that Ouija received his nickname, a phonetic spelling of the popular fortune-telling Ouija board game. But instead of O-U-I-J-A, Ouija spelled his moniker W-E-E-G-E-E, Ouija, to which he would later add the superlative, The Famous. Ouija the Famous, he called himself, in both an ironic and clearly non-ironic fashion. And thus, the branding of Arthur Felig was complete. If there is one single thing that made Ouija really stand out, it is this. Murder. He once very famously quipped, Murder is my business. And indeed, he really made it his most profitable line of work, capturing not only the aftermath of a deadly confrontation, but also its grittiest details. A crumpled car destroyed by a terrible crash, a bloodied corpse haphazardly lying on a sidewalk, perpetrators being taken away in shackles. With such in-your-face images, Ouija is meant to grab your attention immediately. And even today, over 75 years later, his images still mesmerize. Certainly, this was a major selling point to New York's many tabloids, who paid top dollar for the grisliest of Ouija's works. The old news adage about television, if it bleeds, it leads, was something that Ouija could set his bank account by long before there was even televised news. And if you'll pardon my terrible pun, he really made a killing at it. A good example of Ouija's photos is a piece simply titled Murder Victim, circa 1940. Lit by Ouija's stark flashbulb, it's a quick glimpse of a policeman's lower body, a mangled, open-shirted corpse, and a distressing baby carriage parked in the background. It's a moment captured. There's nothing posed about it. One can really just visualize Ouija bursting forward past any police lines to grab the quickest snap possible. And that very sensation of quickness just brings home the veracity of these images. This was real life. This was a crime scene, and this person really lived and died. And Ouija was there in our place, to act as witness and to capture the moment for generations to come. This is one of Ouija's images where a murder victim is not identified to us. For many of the crimes which he documented, he was able to garner information from the police and from passersby. Who were the victims and perpetrators? What really happened here? And in some cases, he was almost more excited and starstruck when the individuals were connected to something especially seedy, like organized crime or prostitution rings. And indeed, Ouija's identification of, and near celebration of, those who would dwell in the pseudo-underworlds 
would prefigure the cult of celebrity which would eventually become hugely important to Ouija, as well as many others to come after him. As horrifying and grotesque as these blatant murder images are, to me, there's almost nothing more awful than one of Ouija's most famous photographs. It's a picture titled, Their First Murder. This particular photo doesn't actually even show a murder at all. Instead, we see a group of children, probably aged somewhere between 8 and 9 and upwards of 15 or 16 years old, as well as two women who are all reacting wildly to witnessing a murder. In Ouija's first book, published in 1945, entitled Naked City, he did pair this image with one on the following page of the corpse lying in the street. But it is really their first murder that strikes our attention. It's hard to look away from the faces here. In his book, Ouija wrote a one-liner to describe the scene as he remembered it. Quote, A woman relative cried, but the neighborhood dead-end kids enjoyed the show when a small-time racketeer was shot and killed. Unquote. A couple of the children in this photo are outright laughing at what they've seen. A small group in the middle consists of a brunette girl straining with manic wild eyes to get a better look, while another child's hand pulls at her from behind, perhaps tugging at her hair, either to get her away to safety or to vie for a better viewing position himself, and it's probably the latter. A blind boy at the far left mugs for the camera, smiling hugely, because this is his moment to be memorialized. Others just outright stare. The kids remind me that their response and reactions are not yet molded by behavioral expectations, nor are they mature enough, possibly, to understand fully what they've just seen. The two women, though, are in direct contrast to the children. They act appropriately for witnessing the end of life. Anguish, downturned eyes, tears. And that's what I find to be one of the most interesting and unique elements of Ouija's work. Ouija himself photographed in a dispassionate way, but the people he photographed are so emotive and so expressive that I find myself standing not in the photographer's shoes, but in the subject's shoes. Ouija doesn't act as a substitute for us as viewers, like many photographers do. Instead, he mirrors our own emotions and tendencies back to us. And for me, the responses captured by Ouija and what they might mean for us as viewers are what makes his photographs so disturbing. Coming up next, it's the legacy of Ouija, how he got his big art world breaks, defected to Hollywood, and inspired Joe Pesci and Jake Gyllenhaal. Stay with us. Let's face it, shopping for car or home insurance is complicated. You can spend days looking up hundreds of providers, scrolling through thousands of policy options, and if you're anything like me, you're spending a lot of the time afterward dodging calls from overly friendly customer service representatives or dealing with those spammy emails just trying to get you to look one more time. All of this is really hard. And even then, it's really hard to know if you're getting the best price and coverage for your particular needs. And that's where the Zebra can help you. The Zebra is the nation's leading insurance comparison site for car and home insurance. In other words, they do the insurance shopping for you. And in just five minutes, you can compare quotes from every major insurance provider side by side for free, all from one independent marketplace. The Zebra pairs people with the insurance company that's right for them, delivering quotes with the coverage that they need and saving them an average of $922 on home and car insurance combined. Buy online or over the phone with one of their licensed insurance agents. 
The zebra is also totally independent, with no stake in the policy they choose. They just want to help you get the best insurance for you. So shop car insurance and home insurance without shopping around. Get all your options in one place for free by visiting thezebra.com slash art. That's thezebra.com slash art. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy. And I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com slash artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Ouija focused his lens on the violent tragedies of everyday life, particularly the everyday lives of working and lower-class citizens of post-Depression New York. And somewhat dispassionately, he sensationalized it, capitalized it, and elevated it. You see, Ouija was not only popular in the truest sense, meaning that his tabloid fodder images were sought after by the same working folk he photographed, but they were also praised by the fine art community, too, for his dramatic style and technique. And this popularity on both fronts occurred during his lifetime, not after the fact. Which, if you think about it, is not the norm for most artists. In 1941, New York City's Photo League held the first exhibition of Ouija's work. And shortly after that, in 1943, MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, began collecting his images and showing them in a museum for the very first time. As one can imagine, Ouija was thrilled with the fact that he was beginning to be shown and collected by esteemed institutions throughout the city and he took his own involvement in these shows seriously. For the Photo League exhibition, he even designed these infamous wall displays with splashy, sensational text, and went so far as to drop red paint down the side of his installations to remind viewers of spilled blood. But these exhibitions had an extra element to them as well. They served as a celebration and praise of Ouija himself. Remember, Ouija called himself Ouija the Famous, and it's also true that a significant portion of Ouija's artistic output were self-portraits. He was his own best subject, his favorite subject, really. And he knew that he was doing something new, different, and original. He was firmly part of the scene in which he was photographing, 
And indeed, he felt that a crime, especially a murder, just wasn't complete until he documented it. As he once wrote, quote, No bumping off was official until I arrived to take the last photo, and I tried to make their last photo a real work of art, unquote. Ouija the Famous was the key, he thought, to it all. One of the nice things about using yourself as a subject is the immediacy and ease involved. Wow, you have somebody here to photograph. Whenever you'd like to photograph him or her, you can just do it. And this sense of immediacy also lends itself to spontaneity and experimentation. So it shouldn't be a surprise to know that Ouija used his own images to try out his newest and latest techniques. One of his innovations in the early 1940s was what he would eventually call his elastic lens, which was actually a combination of a bendable lens and a variety of filters, mirrors, and even kaleidoscopes that he used to distort his images. Figures or individual parts of such figures were then duplicated, made to disappear, elongated, or truncated. It became an obsession for Ouija, and became an even bigger part of his oeuvre after he decided that he had had enough of the darkness of Manhattan. He was over its murders, its gangsters, and those grimy, gritty flashlit nights. And instead, he opted to move to the bright lights and big stars of Hollywood. For just over four years, from late 1947 to early 1952, Ouija mingled with actors, singers, politicians, and writers, taking their pictures on lieu of those of bank robbers, crash victims, and detached onlookers. But this new phase of his career wasn't about taking images of all those pretty people. In fact, it looks like it was just about the opposite. It was about using those elastic lenses on them as he had done to himself and to create these bizarro portraits of everyone from Clark Gable and Ed Sullivan to later Jackie Kennedy and Johnny Carson. As he described it, quote, I had to have a lens out of this world to do justice to the strange sights and people which are Hollywood, unquote. His most iconic became a series of images he completed of Marilyn Monroe in the early 1950s. She, who was at the height of her powers and popularity, and was seen as this voluptuous ideal of American beauty. But instead of celebrating that beauty, Ouija purposefully hides it, transforming an image of Marilyn with her eyes closed and puckered lips, warping it so that her mouth is squeezed small and slightly off-center, and her nose is transformed into a pig-like snout. In another version, her nose is squeezed into this tiny line, her eyes pulled sharply together, Marilyn Monroe via a funhouse mirror. All of these images are comedic, and for me, my first instinct is to laugh at them. But then I quickly find myself grimacing, because these distortions are harsh. There is a darkness there, an interest more in finding and focusing on the ugly than in the beauty that surrounds us, because beauty really isn't something that Ouija found interesting at all. In an interview, he once dismissed it entirely, stating, quote, Everyone likes beauty, but there's ugliness. Don't forget, it's human. Unquote. That ugliness of humanity is the one thing that pervades all of Ouija's works from beginning to end. Even when he wasn't distorting a celebrity's image, he would focus instead on an unattractive facial expression or a harsh angle or even the lesser enticing hangers-on in a celebrity's orbit. It's playful and satirical, a little bit rude and totally irreverent. But when so many others, like Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, Alfred Stieglitz, were systematically teasing out the beauty in every curve, line, and shadow, what makes Ouija so memorable is that he specifically ran the other way. His Hollywood works aren't as popular or as praised as his New York murder pictures, but they are still a really important part of who Ouija was. 
He was all about the hustle, about highlighting what you'd rather have hidden, about all that ugliness and that darkness. In Hollywood, he went about the same themes that he had pursued in New York, but just did it from a different angle. Hollywood, though, wasn't meant for Ouija forever. In 1952, he moved back to New York City, and it was there that he spent the majority of his remaining years. The funny thing is that even though Ouija left Hollywood, Hollywood never ended up leaving Ouija, and his years he spent there affected what he would end up doing for the rest of his life. Returning to New York, he felt that he couldn't be that same dead-eyed street photographer that he was 10 years prior. He had changed and experimented and was eager for yet another new challenge. He thought back to his time in Hollywood, and the metaphorical light bulb lit up. The movies. There's more to the story coming up right after this quick break. Don't go away. I just recently finished a build onto our house, so I have this amazing new screen porch. And now I am looking for that one special something that will pull it all together and make it a place that I super love to spend time in. And that's why I'm looking at Woodstock Chimes. Woodstock Chimes adds an artful touch to your garden or your patio, and they're also lovely accents for indoor rooms as well. You hang them near an open window in the summer, and you'll hear this beautiful music when the breezes blow. This company offers chimes that are tuned to various melodies and musical scales, and each one is different and delightful. They have beautiful decorative chimes, wind bells, gongs, fountains, and sun catchers to help you create these beautiful tranquil spaces in your home, and a line of personalized chimes that are laser engraved with your own messages prior to shipping. All of them make amazing gifts. You can listen to sound samples on their website, and you'll even find wonderfully large, deep tone chimes that make a huge statement for your gazebo or your entryway. And I would love for you to try one for yourself. Listeners to this podcast can get 15% off now by going to chimes.com and using the promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's chimes.com, promo code ARTCURIOUS. Woodstock Chimes, the world's favorite wind chime. Thank you to Storyblocks for sponsoring today's episode. Have you ever had to make a professional video? Making a compelling video story can be expensive and time-consuming. But Storyblocks is now here to make it easier on you, the creator, than ever before, allowing you to keep up with growing demands for video content without sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Storyblocks is the first unlimited download subscription-based provider of stock video and audio, with over 100,000 customers in the television and video production industry, from NBC to MTV to hobbyists looking to enhance their video projects and productions. All their assets, from video clips, music, stock images, sound effects, and more, are royalty-free, so you can use your downloaded content anywhere for both commercial and personal use. Plus, their library is being constantly updated to give you the best options to bring your story to life. I recommend trying out their unlimited all-access plan that gives you unlimited downloads of more than 1 million assets in their library, so you can try out multiple options quickly and find the perfect fit so you can create more and spend less without sacrificing quality, which is something that's important to me as I expand the reach of Art Curious and what I, as a creator, can do. So I want you to try them out now. To learn more, please visit storyblocks.com slash artcurious. Join today at storyblocks.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. 
Though he was still working as a film photographer and even lectured frequently both in the U.S. and in Europe on photography theory and practice, his passion had really shifted to film. It wasn't too much of a stretch, though. And in fact, it appears that he had been experimenting with 16mm film as early as 1941. While he was in Los Angeles, the film bug really took hold. Not only for himself as a filmmaker, but also, apparently, as an actor. He was first cast in a role that makes an awful lot of sense. He portrayed a street photographer in the 1948 film Every Girl Should Be Married, and followed it up with an uncredited role as a boxing ring timekeeper in the 1949 film The Setup. And in fact, all of his acting gigs, about seven in total, were uncredited except for one, an oddball 1966 pseudo-documentary slash sexploitation film starring Ouija as a version of himself as a photographer and woman chaser, the improbable Mr. Ouija, and was a so-called nudie cutie film that was equally ridiculous and slapstick. It was Ouija's first and only starring role, and by all accounts, it's pretty terrible. But if there is only one major Hollywood gig that we can choose to remember Ouija's cinematic period by, then we have lucked out, because there happens to be a surprisingly worthwhile entry in his filmography. In 1964, he was billed as a technical consultant to one of the most famous directors in the history of film and in one of that director's most famous movies. He was a consultant for Stanley Kubrick in Dr. Strangelove. Kubrick, like so many others, was blown away by Ouija's New York Street photography the grittiness, those harsh lights, that blinding whites, and those inky blacks. A film about the bombing of all humankind needed an aesthetic that was like a jolt. So who better than Ouija to inspire that dramatic aesthetic? But that wasn't all that Ouija ended up inspiring on set. Legend has it that actor Peter Sellers was so intrigued by Ouija's totally unique accent, German by way of the Lower East Side, that Sellers imitated it in order to give his character his own unique way of speaking. Ouija died in New York City in 1968 at the age of 69, but his legacy has loomed far beyond, and he influenced many artists, especially other photographers who came after him. One look at Diane Arbus's beloved weirdos on the outskirts of society, the vacant stares of people loitering in public parks or street corners, and you can see Ouija's legacy. Robert Frank's iconic late 1950s series, The Americans, might not have been possible without Ouija's street photography from two decades prior. And of course, Let's not forget the mid-20th century's top provocateur who was equally fascinated with death and celebrity as Ouija was, Andy Warhol. I love the comparison between Warhol and Ouija so much that I actually discussed these two together in an earlier episode of the Art Curious podcast. That's episode five if you want to go back and listen. And you'll learn about how these two are much more similar than they might appear to be on the surface. Even today, a new generation of photographers is discovering his work for the first time and taking them to heart. And of course, it's not just his aesthetics that have made a lasting impression. It's also his oversized personality and his way of working. Peter Sellers would not be the last actor who was inspired to mimic Ouija on the big screen. Dario Argento's 1991 film, Two Evil Eyes, presents us with a character modeled after Ouija and played by Harvey Keitel. Keitel's character, by the way, is called Rod Usher. Usher being an almost blatant reference to Ouija's birth name, Asher Felig. In the film, Usher is a crime scene photographer who proclaims, still life is my art, which obviously mirrors Ouija's famous saying of murder is my business, while punning, of course, on the art term of still life and the fact that a corpse is a literal representation of a still life. See what they did there? And then the next year, Joe Pesci's Leon Bernsey Bernstein, also a crime scene photographer, 
was modeled even more directly on Ouija, right down to that iconic stogie in the film The Public Eye. At one point, Bernstein gets into a crime scene so suddenly that the on-screen cops marvel that he must be using a Ouija board to divine crime locations. In 2014, Ouija once again inspired a Hollywood blockbuster in a film that updates his temperament and style to the 21st century's 24-hour news cycle. Instead of a crime scene photographer, Jake Gyllenhaal's Lewis Bloom in Nightcrawler is a freelance shooter of documentary news footage who sociopathically takes his job to the extreme. And like Ouija, he tries to sell his images to the highest bidder. Ouija was nothing if not the most fundamental capitalist when it came to his work. He once claimed, quote, If I had a picture of two handcuffed criminals being booked, I would cut the picture in half and get five bucks for each, unquote. Truly, you can see the ripples of Ouija's powerful work all throughout visual culture. And though Ouija once famously said that practically anyone can make photographs like he did, there could only ever be one Ouija the famous. Ouija, who called himself the greatest photographer in the world. Thank you for listening to this curious callback episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Our podcast services are provided by our friends at Kabunki. Subscribe now to their new show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies hosted by Josh Dassel, my husband, and visit subgenrepodcast.com for more details. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator, which means you can donate tax-free to Art Curious to show your support. To find donation links and for more details about our show, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Art Curious Pod. And don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, five stars, please, and tell anyone you want about the show. We are still in the middle of our break between seasons, but we will be back in mid-October with brand new content. So stay subscribed, keep following, and check back soon as we explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.